The things that Atlassian does really well is attack problems with first principles. Once you start supplementing what you haven't put in products with people, you never really go back and fix those things. Atlassian's culture is harmonious and yet separate. We've been doing things a certain way. Now we're going to do things different. You know, if you're 200 to 300 to 500 people, that's really, really hard. We sort of had to think differently about how to build a business. Hi, I'm Fred Stephen Smith, CEO of Rainforest QA, and you're listening to my podcast, Zero to One. On this show, we'll explore the often overlooked tools and techniques that the best founders use to win. Zero to One is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. So don't freak out, guys, but this one is a little different. This time I'm interviewing my friend Jay, who is the president of Atlassian, and he's such a big deal, and Atlassian's story is so fascinating that really this is kind of just a free-form interview where we go into pretty much all aspects of how Atlassian is unique. So I hope you enjoy something different this week. Hello, everybody. Today I am with the handsome and talented Jay Simons. Say hello, Jay. Hello, Jay. <laughs> uh, I met Jay. It's the worst joke. It's the worst joke, but it's a good start. It's a dad joke. Um, <laughs> a dad joke? <laughs> are you a dad, actually? I am, yeah. Perfect. Two girls. Yeah, you can tell. <laughs> um, I met Jay four years ago when we were raising our first seed round, and we have stayed in touch since, and he gracefully agreed to be on the podcast today. Jay is the president of Atlassian. Tell us a bit about Atlassian. You know, if someone doesn't know about Atlassian, give the elevator spiel. You know, what do you say to the kind of IPO roadshow people? We make software for teams. And we've always made software for, software for teams. And we started with a very critical team early on, which I think is was fortunate. We started with the team building software, you know, way back in 2002. And our flagship product is a product that most people are familiar with, Jira, that basically is... Um, Collaborative project system started out as a, a bug tracker or an issue tracker and has sort of evolved into like a pretty rich system for tracking shared work and projects, not just for software teams, but kind of across a wide range of different teams inside of the business. And we've steadily complemented Jira with a number of other key aspects of team collaboration and teamwork, content sharing, messaging, communication for development, code collaboration. But ostensibly, we are deeply rooted in helping. People work better together and unleashing their potential. Nice. You can tell you practice that. Oh, I don't know. That was the first time I've done it. <laughs> and and incidentally, Jira is Rainforest's number one requested uh, integration. Go Jira. Yeah, yeah. Go Jira. And then tell us a tiny bit because I think one of the more interesting things about Alessian is like how the company is set up in terms of geographically and all of that kind of stuff. Just tell us a, a, a little bit about that. So started, headquartered and started in Sydney, Australia. Two founders um, and co-CEOs are still based in Sydney. company was started in 2002 and you know, part of our, our origin story is, and even, even way back, you know, like Mike and Scott, the two founders, basically the first iteration of Atlassian was um, little known. Atlassian Trivia was a service and support Company for an open source application server called Orion. Hmm. So these guys were sort of big in the Java community, had some experience and familiarity with Orion. Said well, we're going to start like a little company that basically helps do support and custom development on top of that, on top of Orion, which I think was was largely centered in Europe. I mean, most of the customers are in Europe. So here they are in, in Sydney, <laughs> um, doing technical support and custom development for Swedish, you know, telephone companies. Right. And uh, realized that and literally that, twelve hours out of the right like time everything time. was like they tell they tell the, the story that basically they they'd sort of uh, go to a party on a Friday night or go to a party on, on you know on a week week night and one of them inevitably would get sort of like a pager buzz or sort of a text <laughs> or an email and then they'd have to ask the uh, the whoever's house they were if there was a spare quiet room that they could kind of crack open a laptop and do some support for <laughs> some Swedish company. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> They both admit it was an awful business, but from that, you know, they basically created Jira because, you know, at the time, all of the the tools that they were going to use to sort of like track, you know, work and issues and projects that they were supporting, you know, their, their customer base with were just crude and primitive and and frustrating. Mm-hmm. And so they they um, scratched their own itch, basically built Jira to support what they needed to do, and 
kind of the rest is 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 history. But you know, in 2002, when they when they'd created Elastic, they stumbled across a product that they knew that there was a market for, and that they, I think there was energy and excitement around. You know, it was a terrible time to basically fundraise. So you know, the the depths of of nuclear winter for tech. Right. To, the internet is dead. To, the internet's dead. Like yep. two Australian, you know, founders <laughs> that basically had had you know just dropped out of college or finished college to kind of start a company. Um, in you know in sort of a space that isn't really sexy like supporting software development and development teams they couldn't raise money if they tried and so I think the it kind of catalyzed a, a lot of, of how we have built kind of the go-to-market function and have expanded the model because we sort of had to think differently about how to build a business and I wasn't there at the time but you know they were in Australia they knew that most of the market was not in Australia and they had to figure out a way to reach that market and you know it's it sort of like one of the one of the 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 things that Atlassian does really well is attack problems with first principles, and I think it it sort of started way back. You know, we we couldn't do what everyone else had done at the time because it just wasn't available to us. And so then you look at a problem, you're like, okay, how how will I solve this problem? Just reinventing a solution to it. I'm not going to do what everyone else would have done in the situation or what have people have done before. So that you know option isn't available to me, and so I'm just going to rethink it. And a lot of our go to market model. Was sort of born from that requirement, and so you know, again, two thousand two, you know, the internet was basically just blossoming. AdWords, you know, was relatively new to to uh, you know to to companies that were trying to market and reach a market, and you know, the 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 guys at the time just said, well, let's use the internet to basically distribute the software to other businesses, which. Today, you know, it's sort of like a head nodding, duh. Yeah. At the time, I think it was really, really a foreign concept. And then, you know, we are now 1,600 people kind of around the world still. R&D is largely centered in Australia, which for us is an advantage. We don't have to um, duke it out with every other tech company that's trying to hire engineering. We were sort of the hire of choice in Australia. And have now kind of blossomed into a, a you know a relatively globally distributed company, big presence in the U.S., big presence in Europe, big presence, and naturally still in Australia. And you and you tend to have kind of like the clusters, right? Like I, I've been to the beautiful San Francisco offices, which is amazing, and that you have a bunch of people there. Do you replicate that model around the world, or is it like lots of people working from home as well? How does that work? Try to um, there are people that work from home who try to like build kind of deep cultural centers. Like culture is a big part of the company and a big part of who we are. And you know, even though we believe in distributed teamwork because we create products that enable it um, better, we also believe in culture and the intimacy of human connection. And so wherever we are, we try not to spread ourselves too thin and try to create kind of an experience and an atmosphere that's going to be conducive to creativity and, and teamwork because human connection, I think, is a really important ingredient that you can't underestimate. Yeah, absolutely. And as I feel like that's a, you know, we, uh, Rainforest as a company right now, we have about 30 people, about half of our employees are fully distributed you know so there's one in Tokyo there's one in Austria there's one in Lima you know and it's been a question for us and I think in general a question for you know modern software companies like one of the major benefits that we have is that you need an internet connection and a, a laptop and you can do your work anywhere in the world but on the other hand you have such real challenges of communicating and mm-hmm. as you say building this culture and you know, creating something really meaningful that is exciting for people to go to work every day. And that seems to me to be a, a kind of fundamental tension. It, you guys have ended up solving that by kind of clustering people in, in specific places. Have you seen people do the other way well? Do you think that would work for certain companies? And for you guys, culture is really important? Or do you, would you generalize that rule? You mean the hyper-distributed model? Yeah, so first of all, I would say you know there, there are pros and cons to to basically any organizational structure, and you know it's funny like early on at Atlassian people would say what's the one thing that you would change, and my answer was always the same. It was oh I put everybody in the same place in the same building in part because you know when we were really young and we were a hundred people. That intimacy was sort of divided in half. Like we were, you know, a big chunk of people in San Francisco and a big chunk of people in Australia. And you know, the one thing I, the, the one thing that I wished for was, you know, you lose out on the, hey, I got, I got, I want to walk this out with you, or go grab a beer, or go grab a coffee. The social connection, like we, there was the intimacy we built through 
threaded discussions and you know chat rooms and avatars mm-hmm. but kind of the real human connection was sort of missing for people that were in two different places and yet even though that's one thing I would change that was one of our greatest assets that we could really work because we had you know a, a centered population in Australia and a centered population in San Francisco we worked both sides of the day right. and it always felt like you know, in in the U.S., that there were there was just a group of people that were beavering away while I slept, and when I woke up, like you know the you know the proverbial ball had moved, you know, a couple of yards closer to the goal line, right. which is a great feeling. You're like, wow, like my colleagues and my counterparts somewhere else had basically had really kind of moved forward, and I can pick up the baton and keep running. Or the, I mix metaphors there, but um, that's great. And, and I'm sure I'm sure that also it's super helpful that you know part. Like part of what you're doing, kind of like the GitHub thing, you're helping build the tools for collaboration that you yourselves are testing by the nature of how the company is set up. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned GitHub. GitHub is a company that I think. Yeah, not to mention one of your competitors. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's a a friendly competition. You know, they they leaned really heavily into um, building a distributed company where. You know, I mean, I think they were at one point, they were in a, you know, they had a hundred people and, you know, 40 different locations or something crazy like that. And, and, you know, I, I, again, I think that there's a lot of advantage and strength that gives them. And then there's, there's, there's some consequence too. It's like when, when you want to pull everybody into a single place and kind of really unify them around a vision or a mission, that becomes harder, right? And yep. maybe you guys will face that. It might be fine when you're 30. When you get to be 300, the downside impact of that might be something as a, as a company you reevaluate or not. Yeah. And I think also, what I've seen is that you know I'll say this about GitHub, so you don't have to. You know, I think they've stepped back from that that hyper distributed model where you know now you see that a lot of the the revenue focus functions are in the San Francisco headquarters actually, and that's kind of the the kind of split we've ended up with so far. I mean, like you said, we're still a tiny company. Communication is not difficult today, but the the thing that we've kind of ended up with is most of engineering is distributed. All of sales and marketing and customer success is here in San Francisco, and I, I definitely see you know the kind of personality types and that it, that a typical great engineer or a typical great salesperson has are more conducive to one or the other. You know, yeah. like the engineers love working in the cave and you know not being distracted and not having lots of shit going on everywhere and being able to just kind of get heads down. And you know, I see there's a couple of engineers in the SF office and. I see them regularly talking to each other on on HipChat while they're sitting next to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they choose to kind of communicate like that, even regardless of of where they are in the world, which is kind of interesting. Whereas the sales guys is all about you know like all of the talk and all of the banter and going out for beers together. Sure, I think too about you know like as companies grow. I mean, the, the harder thing for me that I think about is like where companies face big strategic questions or challenges. You know, it's it's sometimes it's difficult to. Like communication is hard, and sometimes, like either in um, you know an internal email or a memo or a blog post or you know even kind of a video uh, of someone saying why this is important that we need to do this thing or there's a strategic change or opportunity we need to pursue. The thing I think a lot about is feeling really connected to that takes human like some human connection. It's very difficult if right. you're to transfer the the meaning of things. You know, you, you sort of the law of leaky abstraction, where you've got people in a zillion different places to really make them feel connected. In part because you need you need people to believe, right? And you can't just say it's important that you do this and do it if they're not convicted about why you're doing that, and they're not, they don't feel a part of it. Yeah. Then potentially the outcome actually is going to be degraded because like they just they don't believe, and it it always feels to me rightly or wrongly that that if you can gather. You know, you gather people in a room and you sort of talk about like why is this hurdle that we need to jump over there? Like why is it so important for us to important for us to jump? Why are we, you know, gonna you know, gonna jump this high or jump this way and really have people take the time to kind of understand that? And if they internalize it, I think you're in a better position to actually clear it. Yeah, I I completely agree. Do you guys, you know, one of the things that we do is we and who knows how long this will be tenable, but we bring Everyone on site once per quarter, and you know I can see as we get bigger and bigger that that's it gets harder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to probably become do impossible. It, yeah. Do you guys do something similar in terms of getting all of the Atlassian people in one place ever? Uh, we we do we do regional. I mean, again, like we're pretty we're pretty centered around offices, and so there's not a ton of remote remote work. Remote work tends to be. 
you know, a really, really small percentage of where people are. And we encourage people to sort of come into an office. We've created a great environment for you to, to work in and be connected and sort of do the things you do. And so, you know, avail yourself of that. And then, you know, in those centers, one of the rituals for us is we've always done an end of our end of fiscal year kind of celebration, which is a let your hair down. And we don't try to do that company wide. We do it company wide, but we tend to do it. You know, it's a chance for each office, I think, to really mm. build camaraderie and teamwork. And so we make sure that if you're remote to a San Francisco office, that's a time that you come back in and you connect and you spend a day with everybody. Interesting. So then for you guys, the you know, there's not so much crossover between the Sydney office or the San Francisco office. No, it's super because it's super hard. Yeah. You know, even when yeah, we were, yeah. even when we were hundred, I mean, yeah, you're you're asking, you know, at the time we would have asked sixty people to basically you know, take a fourteen-hour flight. <laughs> <laughs> They'd have to really love the company. <laughs> you really do, yeah. Especially the back of the bird. Um, so, so let's let's talk about rituals. Actually, that that's something that that is quite interesting to me. You know, we haven't touched on your background before at Lassie at all, but you know, over your career, I guess that's something that I see as a young company. We're starting to evolve. There's a few things that people have ended up. You know, doing just they just happened, and then the the company kind of coalesces around it. One of those things was the quarterly onsites. You know, that's now a hugely important part of all of, the, especially the remote people's lives. You know, every three months they get to share all of these in person experiences, and there's various other things like that. You know, how deliberate have you guys been around creating rituals? You know, do you think that's important for a for a young company to do? You know, what what are your just oh, general ab- thoughts on that? Absolutely. You know, I think that there's a couple of things that we've created that we've tried to institutionalize because they're so important. So, you know, a, a relatively well-known example of that is is what we call Ship It, which is basically a quarterly hackathon, 24-hour period. You get to work on whatever you want, and the only requirement is that you've specified in advance what you're going to do. And so you've thought, like, this is the problem that I want to solve or the feature that I want to build or the itch that I want to scratch. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that period, you just stand up in front of everybody and show how far you got. And And really the idea is that you are trying to ship something, and we what started. Did you do most we started that. Uh, you know, it's actually like most. We, the, the joke was we shipped the company. <laughs> you know, we, we, ship, we shipped. That's a cop out, Jay. We shipped an IPO. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, um, that's true. That's not a cop out. Took longer than twenty four hours. <laughs> but we. Uh, but do you? I mean, does everyone get involved? Like, do you get involved in these? These? I do. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the. You know, the, the actually the last shipper project I worked on was uh, redesigning the Alaskan cycling jersey. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Are you a cycling nerd? Re- yeah, relatively popular project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> bet. But you know that that's one that we've institutionalized, where like every office participates in that. And you know, funny backstory is it used to be called FedEx because the idea was like you ship something in a day, mm-hmm. and uh, it became so popular that FedEx. Like FedEx, the, the lawyers contacted us and said, actually, stop calling that FedEx because no it used way. to be that when you I, when you searched FedEx space day. That Atlassian actually uh, outranks. Wow! So you get all the um, blog posts and all of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's and, awesome. And so we renamed it Ship It. But that's one. But it, but also, I think we've been careful about letting each office create their own rituals right. and and not try too hard to basically thrust those into another culture. Like I've often described, you know, Atlassian's culture is is um, harmonious and yet separate. Like when you go to Australia, it's familiar but different. In, in a way that, like, you can celebrate both those things. You'd be like, "Oh, the things that I really love, and that I want to, I like. I know that I'm an Atlassian here, and that this is an Atlassian place, and that I'm connected to other Atlassians. But um, this is also uniquely an Australian place, or uniquely an Austin place. And mm-hmm. so, I'll give you an example of a couple of rituals here in San Francisco. We started one that, again, didn't transfer to other offices for for whatever reason, but you know, became one that we talked about publicly a lot. And it was like the Friday beer cart. And so one thing that we did when we were really young is we just instituted, we bought a couple of big adult tricycles. Mm-hmm. And uh, for happy hour on Friday, you know, the one requirement is if you were a new hire, you had to jump on that adult tricycle, load it with a bunch of beer and <laughs> drive it desk to desk to desk. And it wasn't just beer, it could be soda and you know whatever, but you, right, the requirement was that you would deliver personally and introduce yourself. And it was an incredible way of kind of breaking down that awkwardness of being a new hire and not knowing people's names. It just forced you to basically go out of your comfort zone and say, you know, and everyone expected it. It was like Friday, where's the beer cart rolling around? No one would leave their desk. And and it was an incredible, like incredibly successful ritual of building culture early on. Yeah. Um, Austin, you know, Austin basically tried that a little while and then said, ah, it's not quite working for us in part because the their physical space 
was divided in a way that it wasn't really kind of inclusive in the way our physical space was. And so they did a uh, Friday breakfast burrito. And on every Friday breakfast, they do this ritual where all the new hires come and the whole company doesn't need to go there, but like a fair number of people do show up. And mm-hmm. the one requirement is, is you have to uh, tell an embarrassing story, admit to a tattoo, <laughs> or I can't even remember what the third one is. There's one that you could choose between three things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, that's just an it's it's grown into this this wonderful ritual. Whenever I go there, like I make sure that I like go to that Friday breakfast because right. it's a chance to kind of like reconnect with people that I haven't seen in a while and get to know new people. So I think short answer is like incredibly important. It's the way that you build culture and kind of kinship, which again, when you know, when the shit hits the fan for a company. If you're not building those things, I think your propensity to break through the shit is <laughs> is lower, right? Yeah. If you've really built camaraderie and connection and kinship, then when you need to get everybody to grab an oar and row in a single direction, like you better you got a better shot at it. So tell us a bit about what it's like to, you know, you're the president, right? Which is awesome. I love saying that you're the president. <laughs> um, talk a bit about how that works. You know, you said you you have two co-CEOs, the two co-founders back in Sydney. Do you spend a lot of time face to face with them? Are you on the plane a lot? Is it mostly we're talking, you know, hip chat and video conferencing? How does that work? Do, does each office, does each region kind of operate semi autonomously? It seems like that would be a that's kind of like a departure from like a, the typical company. How you guys do things? So yep, and we're atypical in a bunch of different ways. This being one of them, we have two co founders, co CEOs. I'm responsible largely for all all customer the customer facing part of the operation. Mm-hmm. So sales, marketing, support, customer service, that's sort of my bailiwick. And so, you know, I run a big part of the organization and I'm responsible for, you know, helping generate demand and convert that demand into dollars and and make sure that we're supporting and retaining happy customers along the way. That's kind of my mission. Early on, you know, another part of my mission was to help kind of build, unify, and grow the culture here. We had, you know, two founders in Australia, but we were building, you know, a significant presence. You know, the, the next big office outside of Australia was the one in San Francisco, which mm-hmm. we opened in, you know, before I joined, we'd opened it in 2006. I joined in 2008. So there were like 30 people here. And, you know, now there are 350 here and we have 250 in Austin. So we've grown a lot since then. But at the time it was, you know, they were looking for someone to, to, to sort of be a, a cultural leader, someone on the management team that was really connected to strategy, and and so I think it it uh, alleviated the burden on founders to basically have to come over here and feel connected. We could we could grow that. They could kind of trust you to to kind of run the show. Over yep, and we could grow that kind of single harmonious globally distributed culture, but really really go deep and mm-hmm. kind of build the type of kinship and camaraderie and connection that I think. Helped us weather a bunch of storms along the way. Mm. Um, and what? And and if you know, I'm sure you have some insight into this. What what was it that that convinced the the founders that you were the guy? Like, how did you know them? How did you get the gig? Uh, well, uh, partly, I man, I was hired originally originally to run marketing, and you know, Atlassian has a an, an atypical sales model, and so there isn't a big investment in sales. Like my career, if you go back, like I started my career in, in technology in sales, and so like carried a bag and. You know, did the 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 old traditional you know hardcore enterprise mm-hmm. sales slog. Mm-hmm. Loved it, miss it, but transitioned into marketing in part because in a traditional enterprise sales model, marketing's role is to is to you know help enable the field and uh, help drive demand for the field, and then you know help teach salespeople how to convert it. And because I'd been selling for a long time and I understood the market and products, I was I, it was a natural transition for me into product marketing and marketing. So the back half of my career was was focused on marketing, and what attracted me to Atlassian was, you know, the sort of sales hunger in me to figure out how to how to convert and close, right? Which mm-hmm. which I loved, and then the marketing orientation in me to think about one to one to many, right? A salesperson's orientation is one to one. I identify an opportunity, I figure out how to close that one opportunity. A marketer's orientation is how do I do one thing that sort of like touches and influences and affects many people. And the combination of those two, those two things in me, you know, kind of led me to Atlassian, which is like there is an, an, a very atypical, not traditional sales model. We don't have a traditional sales organization, and marketing's job really is to think about one-to-many conversion, mm-hmm. like both demand generation and conversion. And so, to again butcher another sports metaphor, it really felt like <laughs> I could, I could, and, and the organization could run the ball all the way down the field, and. 
part of the challenge with a human-oriented sales organization is there's interesting. And just to just to clarify that point, that's because there wasn't a big like kind of human heavy sales organization in place already. And so that felt like a more a kind of bigger challenge for you to figure out, okay, how do we actually get the lead all the way through to close totally. without some like passing off to some human sales organization. Totally. Yeah, totally. And it's funny, like the conceit when I first joined Atlassian is I thought, I thought, well, I'm I'm really interested in understanding how to scale this model. It's it's intriguing to me to figure out how it works, how this sort of like investment in automation and customer self-service manifests itself in not needing to generate a bunch of demand that you hand to a sales organization to convert. And you know, there's there's a lot of virtue in actually doing that. And and you know, there's a lot of successful companies have been that have that have been built with that model. But you know, there's there's also a lot of there's just so much you know opportunity for error with that kind of human relationship and human connect you know human connection. Um, there's also a lot of opportunity for it to be successful, but I was intrigued by the way the model worked and figuring out how to scale. And the conceit that you know, when I joined, I thought, well, it's going to have to change. I'll probably have to modulate it because it's what I knew. And the more I, I kind of dug into it and understood how, at least for you know, for us, how virtuous it is, the more it was you know a really good fit and sort of allowed me to. Um, to use sort of both aspects of of what I'd learned in selling and marketing, and so to answer the original question you asked, you know, the the reason I joined originally was, you know, to scale kind of the model and to figure out and functionally I knew how to do that, and mm-hmm. I was I was deeply connected to it, and then I you know I think also maybe the founders saw in me a someone who could also be a significant leader in the company and you know help build and grow culture here, which I think was important to them. So. Atlassian is famous for the no sales model, right? Yeah. And you know, sometimes people talk shit about it and say, "Oh, it's bullshit. They have salespeople." And some people, or most people, seem to believe that that it's the case. And I guess something that is interesting to me is: have there been occasions where you know shit has hit the fan, and you've you guys have started to think, "Well, maybe we should just build an enterprise sales team." Because it feels like that's so tempting to regress back to just the like standard way of doing things. Have you had those situations? How have you guys been able to, you know, kind of not justify, but how how have you concluded that the the best the best idea is to stick with the way you guys are doing things today? Because it's it's hard to go out on a limb, right? It's sure. hard when you don't have other companies to point to, saying, "Well, look at this amazing software company that IPO'd." I mean, you guys are that, will be that for a lot of the developer tools companies that are being built in in heavy bit and, and beyond. But you guys are the kind of trailblazers for that. Yeah. So we've never hit a moment where there's there's been a no shit moment. We thought, okay, this isn't working. We need to do something different. That hasn't happened. Knock on wood. I, you know, I, I, I never say never, but I, I, you know, we're a 13 year old business, and and if you understand the nature of our model, it's it's it will be it would be unusual for us to all of a sudden like hit a wall and be like, oh shit, we got to do something different. Like we've built kind of a, you know, a, a long term, you know, self reinforcing company and model that 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 I th- I think you know there may be. A slow degradation in growth, but it's never going to be an oh shit. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that we've done along the way is like I think we're not dogmatic about it. Like we've evolved and and improved the model, including like you know there there is a the one thing that's misunderstood about our model is like we don't have a traditional sales organization, so we don't have you know sales reps that we assign a quota to, and you know and we don't also give them a lot of the typical weapons that salespeople have, which is discounting. And 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 deal making and negotiation and mm-hmm. really great salespeople, right? Like if you give them those tools, they use them wisely. There's but the problem with uh, one of the challenges with sales is there's a lot of of not really great salespeople that abuse those tools. They abuse discounting and 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 deal making and negotiation. And this gets into kind of deeper to J philosophy. The other challenge with the sales organization is typically the sales organization is is kind of individually compensated. And thus individually motivated, and and so a salesperson kind of doesn't care what the company looks like five years from now. They, they sort of do, but they really care about what the company looks like in this quarter, and they care about what they look like in this quarter. Mm-hmm. And when you combine kind of that incentive with, you know, that some of the tools that you you give a, a a typical salesperson, they can corrupt those two things in ways that I think aren't great for the company long term. And so we actually do have a a human. And, you know, a human group we call them advocates that <laughs> that uh, that aren't commissioned, aren't quoted, but do work in pursuit of servicing the customer where the customer needs extra TLC. Mm-hmm. We also have a channel 
which we don't talk a lot about publicly and, and probably is, is a little bit unfair to say we don't have, have no sales, because we do. I mean, there's like a relatively you know, uh, mature and, and well-developed over years external channel and where there's a, a deal that definitely needs a whole bunch of sales energy, demos and dog and pony shows and all that sort of stuff. Like we haven't invested in an apparatus to do that, but we haven't, well, directly, but we have indirectly. We've said, well, great, like in France, you know, like, Air France needs to talk to somebody and we're competing against IBM and IBM's brought in the whole dog and pony show. We're going to send in this partner that actually has done that long enough where they can they can do that. If that's a requirement to win the deal, we actually can check that box. And how do you, I mean, without you know giving away anything, how, how do you do that? Is it kind of you know, people on like agencies on the ground who do this yeah, professionally. They do. And so you guys develop a relationship with them where they say, hey, we're selling a lot of Atlassian stuff. Like they're a value added reseller, yeah. And so I mean, and they're what's in it for them is like, you know, they they're building a customer relationship. They typically have, you know, professional services and customer development that they're gonna kind of layer on our our they get to work with the customer to kind of, you know, realize team potential by using our technology. And you know, remember like the tool is one thing, but actually getting people to use it and adopt it and change what they do and how they work is a much bigger thing. Right. And you can either rely on the customer to sort of figure that stuff out on their own or a customer can say like, "Hey, you've seen, you know, 18 or 20 or 100 different companies do this and go through this process, help us shortcut it." And so, we've got a lot of people that are out kind of in the market basically saying, "I know how to do that kind of change on top of the Atlassian stack and I can help you with it." Fascinating. Um, and and so and and why do you decide to have that outside of the company, right? Because presumably one can get certified as an Atlassian Jira Pro or something like that and Presumably, those are the like highly scalable ways to enable that kind of thing done by third parties. Like, how do you guys think about that? Uh, well, I think it's more efficient, mm. um, you know. And so we've got, you know, if you think about it, we have, you know, I don't even know how to quantify it, but it's thousands of of people that are out in the market selling. Like, they don't have Atlassian business cards, but they're definitely representing us, and they're building kind of like in their own little territories. You know, a franchise where they understand our technology, and one of the reasons that that works so well for us is because we aren't competing with them, right? Like, if if I had a, a direct salesperson that I I was, you know, I had a quota in France, you know, that salesperson. This is the problem with a lot of channel-driven models with with a traditional sales organization. You know, there's conflict there where you know, like my direct salesperson is thinking, well, I don't want to work with the channel. Like, I'm kind of competing with them, especially like if they take away. Some margin. I'm giving them margin for things that I could do on my own. I'm just going to do it on my own. Right. And so I, I think you know part of the reason that 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 it works so well for us is the period of having a an online sales channel, which we have, and we invested really heavily with. And the bulk of our our business goes through that online sales channel, where we're, our orientation is make the product simpler, reduce friction for the customer, you know, get out of the customer's way, and let. Let most of the customers that sort of come through the store, you know, get to the promised land, and that's our focus. Is we're always trying to chip away at friction. Um, where one of the friction points is, I actually need way more handholding. I need way more intimacy. I need way more selling. I need way more persuasion. I need, you know, all the other things that a tr- that a salesperson would give. I want account management. And I want all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. We've said, well, great. That friction can be reduced by this third party channel. We don't need to develop and manage it ourselves because if we were, potentially, there's a little bit of conflict with with our our pure focus on the online store and removing friction for the customer. Right. Um, and so then, presumably. Your you have then like a more abstracted focus, which is helping enabling those third party people. Like, how much t- time and effort do you invest in that? Yeah, fair amount. Yeah, fair amount. I mean, we're, we're you know, it's it's the channel basically contributes to about a quarter of our business, mm. um, and mostly, and 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 again, this is where you you can think about sort of like the natural kind of slot, you know, supply demand and kind of the friction in the middle. Like m- the channel mostly serves foreign markets, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a bunch of friction that we're not removing on our own. Like, you know, we only allow people to buy in US dollars. Um, you know, mostly we kind of market and reach out to markets in English. You know, most of the the collateral or sort of product demos or whatever we're going to do to try to reach people in mass are, are going to be English English oriented. So if I'm if I'm Air France as an example, and I actually want to talk to somebody in French, and I want to, you know, buy in euros, and I want to be invoiced locally, and I want to establish a relationship with somebody, they're not going to get that from us right. directly, and that would be really expensive for us to build. Like if you think about again, you know, the company basically has customers in, in uh, I lost count, 140 different countries, right? Imagine like how would we have achieved that with a traditional model? 
it'd be incredibly expensive or incredibly inefficient. We'd have like one person that we'd plant inside of Europe and they'd be running all around Europe trying to do all the things that European customers would do. And so the indirect model, I think, has allowed us to fulfill that need, satisfy what the customer wants, but still really focus on kind of what we think is a core a core part of our go-to-market model, which is this sort of online, you know, frictionless, customer-oriented, you know, model. Yeah, but... You know, the thing is with all of this stuff, I'm like, yes, this is super logical and Jay clearly knows his shit and all of this makes sense. And, you know, it kind of sounds like the future, but why why don't more people do this? You know, we're talking about exactly what you said. Well, you send someone to Europe and you'd have them all running around and then you build country offices. And But like, that's what most companies yeah. do. That's basically what every company does. And also going back to the sales thing, you know, the whole notion of essentially that relatively self-centered role because you're being compensated on a monthly or quarterly basis on your own kind of zero-sum terms. You know, yeah, that does seem kind of weird when you explain it like that, but yet everyone does that. So, like, you know, without getting too philosophical about this or maybe getting philosophical about this, what? why do you think that is? Okay. Why do you think you guys have kind of, you know, and I'm not asking you to be facetious here, but do you think you guys have kind of figured out the evolution of the software company model and it's just slowly being adopted? Or is there something particular about Atlassian or your product or your market that enables you to do this, which prevents most people from doing it? I mean, what do you think that's about? Uh, let me unpack that. That's that's, um, that's a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, uh, firstly, I, th- I think there, there are some characteristics of our market and products and and our our origination that conditioned us for this better, right? So like we do early on, we sold you know a relatively technical product to a technical buyer and a technical audience, and they you know we we sold to developers, and so like developers, you know, there's not a lot of a lot that you could complement what the product and the documentation and the experience is going to do, right? If I provide that to a developer and they can't figure out what's a sale, like even a technical salesperson. And the way we thought about it is, is if you need a technical salesperson, whatever they're layering on, figure out how to put that in the product and the documentation and the demos and the onboarding and whatever, right? Because like, and and this is where you you go back to first principles. I think a lot of companies, once you start, once you start supplementing what you haven't put in product for any audience, let let alone, and I'll come back to where we started, let alone a technical audience. Once you start supplementing that with people. It becomes very difficult. Like you never really go back and fix those things. In part because you've you have fixed it. You've you've fixed it with human beings that can in the least efficient way in possible. In the least efficient way possible. But yeah. you fixed it, right? right? And so then you you focus on scaling. And instead of scaling the work about kind of improving the product, improving the onboarding, improving, you know, kind of the growth and experimentation and data and measurement and analytics and all the things that you could really do, you're you're scaling now a sales organization to reach a broader market. So, hey, we didn't have the, as I mentioned earlier, the origination kind of prevented us from thinking that way to begin with. And then our orientation and the, and the ability to sort of like, you know, we had a, a buyer who I think was, was a little bit easier for us to, to sort of work with longer term. And so even, even though we weren't perfect, I think their threshold for pain and their tolerance for, for kind of just busting through on their own was was a lot higher than if we were selling to a line of business executive or something. So like right. that was an advantage, right? right. Um, I often hear a criticism of Atlassian is yeah, but it works because they sell the technical people. That would not work for business buyers, which I think is patently untrue. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of companies that you could look at um, that even if they've modulated differently, they sort of started selling to less technical audiences. Zendesk, you know, I think is a good one where it started and it was a, a, a very deep self-oriented model where you weren't just selling to it to a, you know, a deeply technical developer or IT person. You were selling to somebody in line of business. Right. So that's sort of that's one thing. The reason why I think a lot of companies don't do it is is in part because it is familiar and, and it it's sort of, you know, it's it's a model that a lot of people have, you know, a are familiar with and know how to replicate. And our model, you wouldn't know how to replicate. Like, not many people would because they haven't done it before. And so, and even as I mentioned, even when I joined Atlassian, I thought, well, I know actually like how to add, you know, build out a sales organization and sort of like scale that aspect of go to market and converting customers. This one I had to figure out and learn along the way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that in, introduces some risk. I think that there's, you know, the venture capital community also like there's there's an orientation in technology to grow as quickly as possible. And as sure-footedly as possible, 
and hiring a sales organization checks both of those boxes. Um, you know, it's possible that early on, Atlassian could have grown faster with a sales organization. I, I believe that longer term, like we're going to be able to grow faster continuously with our model than we would with a with a, a traditional sales model. I, I believe that. Yeah. But it's possible that instead of growing, you know, at whatever we grew fifty percent or sixty percent six years ago or seven years ago, we could have grown one hundred percent, one hundred twenty percent. But we would have introduced a whole bunch of things that we're not dealing with now that I think are advantageous to kind of long term growth. And you know, where you've got uh, a small company with a bunch of venture capitalists, it's going to sound like a negative screed against venture capital. But you got a bunch of venture capitalists that kind of don't care what you look like ten years from now. They care what you look like one to three years from now. They they they're oriented around having you build the fastest and biggest business you possibly can as quickly as possible. Some of those influences are good. Some of those influences are bad. Again, if you think back to where we were, we had two founders that that owned ninety five percent of the company, and so they the decisions that they were making were purely oriented around what does this business look like twenty years from now, and that's rare. Right, you you don't get a lot of that. Definitely, um, yeah. and I think all of those are are chemical ingredients that help kind of infer, you know, inform like the model that we started with and how we've have we thought about scaling and improving it over time. And do you think, in general, what do you think about bootstrapping? Has Atlassian ever taken outside capital outside of the IPO? Only secondary. Um, wow. Yeah. So we we the the IPO actually was the first time that the company raised institutional capital. That that actually like went on its balance sheet. Amazing. So we did a, you know, we did a secondary round in 2010 with Excel, and basically the founders split that. That was 60 million. They split, and then in 2000, and, that was 2010 and two, two years ago. It was 2013. We did a secondary round with, or 2014 with T Rowe Price, and that went to employees. Founders didn't participate. And that was like 130 million, and so yeah, all secondary. And you know we've. We've often, you know, described it. Lasting's been run out of the cash register, which again, there's like a kind of a deep financial discipline around in the company around return on investment, where we thought, okay, this is money that we're going to spend. Are we going to? What are we going to get back from that? Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, it, it's if you're not thinking about that from the beginning, I think you can introduce some sloppiness and some inefficiency that I think is hard to correct the the longer you operate with it. You know, like when I talk to some companies that you know have a lot of money that they're spending, you know, like when we think about it, doesn't matter if we're th- if we're running an event. You know, we're thinking, okay, let's really break down what is this going to cost per attendee. How are we going to measure like what we get back at the, like why is this good for us and why is this why if we're going to spend a million dollars here, two million dollars here, is that better than other places we could spend a two, two million dollars? Like really think about that and scrutinize it. Wow. And there's companies that. You know, I was just talking to one that I, w- I won't name, where you know they're running an event, and I was talking to the marketing person. That's just like, yeah, I, people keep on saying spend more, spend more, spend more, and there's no, there's no rigor around why. And and I back to bootstrapping. I think you know, kind of deep in our roots was, boy, think about the dollars that you're going to spend. Don't be cheap, but like be really, really smart. And and I think that's kind of ingrained in our DNA in a way that's healthy. And that must be an adjustment for people, right? Like, you know, especially there's there's people listening to this all over the world, but right now in San Francisco, we're in something of a gold rush around technology companies. And you can kind of see that being reflected in how people are behaving inside companies, like you said, that spend more is 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 tends to be the thing, right? Spend more and it'll it'll turn out in the wash in more leads eventually. How do you instill that from kind of day zero in people that join Atlassian? Do, is there you know, do you guys have like a specific culture document outlining these are the key things? Does someone say to you in the first brief that you get, okay, time to organize your first meetup, this is how we do things. You know, we don't spend without having clear path to like return on that investment. Like how 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 does that actually come about? I, I think it's a lot of it was organic and you know, based on how the founders operate and how they think and you know, from just really early on, you know, if if you and like how it, how it gets instills, I just think it's it's fundamental to who we are. Like when you come to Atlassian, like it doesn't matter what project you're working on. Like there is, and part of this is because like we build products that help enable this. But you realize in the first day, like okay, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to have to think about it. Like build a plan, think about how I'm going to measure the outcome. Like define the outcome, determine how I'm going to measure the outcome, and. 
you know, I bet like some people, some people probably are frustrated and exhausted by that, especially if you haven't faced it. If you were just in a place where it was like, you know, don't think about it too much, just get it done. You know, we are, and by the way, we debate this all the time. We debate is like there's too much rigor and too much, you know, too much of that. Right, because it feels like it's possible that you could stifle the longer term, more like kind of blue sky thinking. Yeah. And so, like, we do, we try to say, well, like, oh, okay, there's certain things that we just want to break down, you know, break down, have a team and just say, just run at this. Um, But I think those, those tend to be more exceptions for the way we operate. And overall, I think this is healthy for us. Like it tends to be, you know, a, a culture that that gets reinforced around, you know, why are you doing what is this for? What are you trying to accomplish? Where can I learn about it? Where have you actually written down and described what this is, why we're doing it, and you know, what we expect to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that's a really good discipline. Um, and you know, people that join new, I think they just they they get confronted with that because there's no there's no other way. It's sort of the way we do things, and that started kind of really early on, and we've been able to kind of scale it and grow. And it's sort of one of those things that was a young company. If you don't have that, eventually, you might you know you might get carried away, and then you try to instill it. I think it's a lot harder where you basically say, okay, we've been doing things a certain way. Now we're going to do things different. That you know, if you're two hundred to three hundred to five hundred people, that's really really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of are operating at 1,600 people kind of in the way that we've operated when we were 60. And so because of that, I think we've, we've sort of been able to scale it. So to, we, this has been such an interesting discussion that really? I haven't <laughs> wanted to ask any specific questions about the, the theoretical topic of the podcast. But you know, getting onto that a little bit, we've talked, we've talked kind of indirectly about a lot of that stuff, but uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is really fundamental to your success personally or, or to Atlassian that, you know, when people like me uh, three years ago, four years ago now come to you and say, Jay, give me advice. <laughs> I'm two people in a garage. How do I, uh, you know, how do I make it? It, it? Are there any, are there any things like tactics, you know, tools, thought processes that you use that that youth consider to be kind of fundamental to your success. It's a great question. I mean, one one is one is uh, ask why a lot. Um, you know, I, I I try to focus on on just asking why, like not accepting. If somebody says oh, we're going to do X, I, I just I, I try to drill in why, like and why is why is X what we've defined we're going to do, or why is you know why why is sort of the approach the one that we've picked. And you know why is a really powerful question because you can always you can always ask it. it can feel like sort of a circle thing. Maybe people that either work for me or work with me get tired of that question because <laughs> you know it doesn't matter what the answer is. You could still ask why again. And and I think it's 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 really useful to sort of like you know dig into the really heart of of whatever the thing is. And just in terms of proving improving effectiveness, uh, I think asking why is one of the most powerful tools like in any situation. And then the one thing that I've learned from Atlassian is, is and maybe this relates to asking why is is always, always be experimenting, always be challenging, like whatever you're doing with, with why couldn't it be different? And you know we've done this a lot. Whether we spend a lot of time talking about the model, but you know we do a lot of experimentation with traditional sales. You know, like what what if like what if we we pick up the phone and. You know, and and call every single customer that tries. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the what's the what the outcome of that approach, mm-hmm. and what would we learn along the way, and is it better or worse? And if it's better, why is it better? And are there things that we could take out of what we've learned that we could apply to the 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 you know the atypical non traditional approach that would make that better? And that just takes a lot of time. But I think we're as a as a company and organization, we're we're pretty. Again, it's like part of the DNA of of always saying whatever the thing is, could it could it be better with a different approach or a different different way? And can we test those two things? And and even where we get an outcome, don't accept it, right? Like say, okay, what's that's an incremental improvement? How do we again test it again? And and it doesn't matter whether you know whether we're talking about product or go to market or support or customer service or HR, talent or culture. You know, I think we really look at at those things through that lens constantly. And again, you have to have a. I think people have to have an orientation. They have to be excited about that because it can be exhausting. Like people can get exhausted, but like, ah, oh, man, I, I just improved it. Why are you asking me to improve it again? Right. And I think like we we want to hire and look for people that that are hungry to always figure out some incremental improvement and constantly be making it better and better and better and better. 
you know, and self-improvement is the same way. You know, like it's it's no surprise there's a big industry around making yourself better, but you're never done, right? Right. I think companies are the same way. You're improving your product is never done. It's it's just a constant state of refinement and and identifying what you could what you could improve and and then once you've achieved that, starting all over again. And so when when you're asking why, how do you do that without Pissing people off. I mean, is it just that people come to know that, like, that's Jay's thing? He's gonna, he's gonna force you to justify yourself, and you better be ready with some answers, or like, you know, what, is, what is that conversation? Like? Yeah, partly, and then, and then I think it's more conversational. It's not a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not, not you sitting on the pedestal well, saying it's also not one, justify yourself. There's, there's, there's many different ways to to ask the question why without using the word why, right? And, uh, and because I think if you were just, just to, you know. Just to um, to volley back a why, just the word why over and over and over again, you'd be a dick. <laughs> uh, and and so I, you know, I don't know. I think I think just conversationally, it's like trying to also like you know one of our uh, one of our kind of un unwritten values. You know, we have five corporate values that we started early on as a company, and they are, you know, be the change you seek, don't fuck the customer, open company, no bullshit, build with heart and balance, and play as a team. Those are our five kind of values, and they've been with us. You know, for ten years, the the one that is unwritten that I think we we reference a lot, even though it's not an official value, is seek to understand, which is rooted in why. Hmm. And and I think that there that really permeates the culture. Then, yeah, in, in terms of internal discussion and and how people communicate and how people learn to be a, a person at Atlassian. Yeah, and and I think and and by the way, our founders are incredibly adept at this. I think really good at this. If you if you people shouldn't be defensive like if you're if you're trying to understand something if somebody reacts negatively to that that's always a red flag for me because you should want to help me understand like you should want you should want me to feel as connected to what you're doing as you are and i'm trying to get there like the reason i'm i'm asking why or i'm i'm trying to like dig in is not to throw you off guard it's like to really internalize it deeply and again like you know i'm also selective with it there's things that i i don't need to spend as much time learning but you know, hopefully, if I'm doing that to people that work with me or that I work around, they begin to do it, and that's like I think a healthy level of scrutiny and, and understanding and connection that we gets transferred across the business. But so to answer the question, I think it's it's mostly framing it around seeking to understand. Thanks for listening to Zero to One. Find me on Twitter at Fredsters underscore S. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, I would go into their library and check out some of the recordings of their speaker series program, where amazing founders get into real detail about how they went from zero to one.